Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Posey Graham Evans is an author, screenwriter, television producer and lyricist. Her most recent novel is The Dressmaker. She is also the author of the historical romance trilogy, The Innocent, The Exiled and The Beloved, set in medieval England. Posey was the creator and producer of one of Australia's best-loved drama series, MacLeod's Daughters, and the co-creator of High Five. In 2002, she became the director of drama at Channel 9, but left that post three years later to write full-time. She also has a production company, Millennium Pictures, which she runs with her husband and creative partner, Andrew Blacksland. Posey, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Now, you've spent a long time in television, creating and producing very successful shows. Then you've moved into full-time writing. Can you tell us why you decided you wanted to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gosh, look, part uh, part of it was a conscious decision and part of it was it basically chose me, I think. Um, for really quite a long time, um, from probably, I reckon about 97, 98, when I was really seriously starting work on my first book, I ran the first three books in parallel to my work in television. Right. And Well, no, I just did. In fact, it was, I used to write once a week. I used to write on Sundays. And in a way, it was um, an antidote to the very structured world of um, film and television writing. Well, it was an absolute antidote. And it was just me, you know, film Mm. and television is is a group activity and you've got people around a table and, oh, anyway. Um, And look, it sort of dawned on me slowly. that I was just more interested in having, um, I don't know, more reflective time in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, it also coincided, we, we, I'm I'm talking to you from a tiny little place in Tasmania, Mm -hmm. which Andrew Blackson, my husband and I have had for the last sort of three or four years. Um, We used to come down for long weekends from Sydney, Mm -hmm. but it was never enough for me because I liked being here right? Um, and um, because it's very, it's just got a beautiful view and the weather is much more dramatic and, you know, it's just a different, yeah, it's a different climate and I Mm. like it more. Anyway, um, and I just ended up being sorry to go back to Sydney every time we got on the plane. (laughs) So Andrew was very good about it and um, I'd also... To give you the full story, um, after McLeod's Daughters finished, which Mm. it did in 2008, we joined forces with Fremantle, who were terrific, run by the Fennessys then, Mm -hmm. a couple of Irish brothers, great fun. Mm -hmm. And we'd not done that before. We did it because we wanted to work with them. Mm-hmm. But uh, it sort of coincided with the time that really all the networks were looking at developing and making cop shows. Right. 
And that's not my nephew, really isn't. I'm not, I find really that I'm, I'm just interested in, in a broader scope to storytelling. Mm. And, you know, it's wonderful books. You can write anything you like. You can write explosions. You can write riots. You can write buildings burning down. And no one says, oh, we can't shoot that for the money. So I just do it. Right. <laughs> and so the first book then, where did the seed of that idea come from? How did that develop? Uh, well, look. Someone told me afterwards who really knows what they were talking about that that book had probably been brewing for 20-odd years, and I think they were right. And the reason is this. I've always read history. I'm really interested in the lives of other people in the past, not because I think they're different from us, but I just... I'm interested in other times and other places and what they ate and what they wore and all of that stuff. Mm. And really, I think the true inspiration for those books, apart from the fact that I like reading history, came from the fact that the trilogy set in medieval England. I had the most inspired professor of English when I was at Flinders University in South Australia. Mm. I did English drama and fine arts and a wonderful man, really, uh, a great scholar called um, Ralph Elliott was the Professor of English Dean of Humanities. Small university. I got to know him and his family quite well. And he had that glorious knack, uh, and I really mean it. You know, sitting in his lectures was just a joy. He was Mm. very funny. Um, He had a really deep knowledge of medieval and Norse literature. And if I'd liked it before, and I did, I was like Chaucer, for instance, the card show, mm. people like that. It came alive, you know? Right. Um, and so I think Ralph Elliot planted the seed. Um, <sighs> and I thought for a while, because I so admired him that I wanted to be an academic, I would have gone nuts as an academic, mm. <laughs> as I now know, because that's not me at all. But it was the storytelling. Right. He, he just, look, he showed me and not just me, everybody who listened to him, um, worked with him. Um, he showed us the beginnings of storytelling and um, and that combined with a love of history, um, uh, look, you know, who knows? I mean, things just stay with you. Mm. And did you know at the time it was going to end up being a trilogy no. or, you no. know? How, when no, you, no, no, no. I'll tell you writing? the story. <laughs> and this is really true. This nearly killed me. Mm. Um, how it came to be a trilogy is I was in, uh, I was in New York um, December of the year 2000, just after the Olympics, and we were there. It was the first week of December. Things always happen to me in the first week of December. Right. Um, and we were there to pull together the last bit of money that we needed to roll a series of McLeods. I pitched it sort of 92, 93 to the network, and it had taken a long time. Mm. Mm. Oh, it didn't roll for nine years after I pitched it. It's a long story, but mm. I think they were worried that a series just about women people wouldn't want to watch it. But anyway, mm. so there we were in New York, me, Hugh Marks from Nine then and the woman who ran Southern Star Distribution, Kathy Payne. And um, I had interest out of Simon and Schuster in New York by the great kindness of a friend who'd sent off the manuscript to the first book and they'd come back saying they were interested. Mm. But then it had all gone cold and um, the trip to New York was an unexpected thing and... I hadn't got it together to contact their office and the office of Judith Kerr got there to New York um, staying in the hotel we were there for a big three days two days in New York had to go to Washington then the last day we were back in New York and we were going to fly out mm. 
So when I got there, I rang Judith's office to be told she was out of town. Mm. And I said, oh, yes, of course, yes, no, don't worry, don't <laughs> worry. You know, I was so embarrassed and so, you know, falling over myself. And, and her assistant said, can I tell her? You called, oh, no, look, it's all right, it's all right. Well, who is it? Oh, it's just Posey from Australia, you know, got off the phone as fast as I could because mm-hmm. I was so embarrassed and mm-hmm. felt like such a twit. Anyway, so I got on with what we did and, um, you know, was running around like a mad thing doing all these meetings. Got back to to New York on the third or fourth day, whatever it is, the last day, to the hotel to find all these messages. Please ring Judith Kerr. Ring Judith Kerr's office. Please ring oh, Judith Kerr. Wow. And she, the assistant had been ringing for a couple of days. Mm. And I, I, you know, that's what happened. And I, so I finally got to see Judith the late morning of the day we were flying out and mm. it was literally drop into her office for half an hour and get back in the car and go to the airport. Mm. But that morning, before I walked into her office, I had just heard we'd got the finally, finally, finally got the money from the clouds. Mm. So I'm reeling and so excited, go into her office and she goes, no, no, we do want to do the book, but you know what? I think it's a trilogy. What do you think? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So, listen, it's true. I fell onto the plane and got drunk. I flew home completely drunk because the two things that I had been hanging out for for years came true on one morning. That's fantastic. Yeah, but I didn't know what I was going to (laughs) do. No, to fit it all in. Yep. (laughs) And so Um, have have you had another day like that? (laughs) Oh, I think I have, yes, one or two. (laughs) I think I think the night that the clouds finally went to air and it sort of burnt the screen down ratings wise was wonderful. Mm. After years and years and years of people just never believing it at work, that was pretty good. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, so then this, so then you proceeded to write on Sundays for yeah. the rest of the time. Did you give yourself pretty a target much. of a n- number of words that you needed to do? Um, look, I knew that I could probably do about ten pages in an afternoon. Right. And which is about, you know, 4,000, 5,000 words, something like that. Wow. And um, I would sit down at around one o'clock. And if I couldn't make it on the Sunday, I'd do it on the Saturday, but, you know, one day a weekend. And I would reread what I had read, uh, what I had written the week before. Mm. And then write another 10 pages. And the biggest task was to resist editing, just mm. to clean it up, mm. you know, just clean it up and move on. And that's a big task because you can, I think any writer sits down, if you sit down with what you've written the week before or the day before or whenever the hell, you go, oh, God. And the temptation is to rewrite from top to bottom, yeah. which is for me. Um, so, look, I learned. I learned. Um, um, and what was interesting for me about those first three books is that they just fell out of the ends of my fingers. And just mm. to go back to the, what my friend had said to me, I think it's true. You know, I've been mulling on these things for so long in a way that I've been doing mentally all sorts of unconscious work mm. on the story and the characters. So when I finally came to write, I, I didn't plot. Mm. It just it just ran out of the ends of my fingers onto the wow. page. No, it really did. And because, unfortunately, because of television, you know, television is a disciplined, fast turnaround medium. So because I had no escape, I had to do it. Um, and I wanted to do it anyway. I did not want to do it. And the stakes were very high. I really, really wanted to do it well. I just had to suppress the panic and do it. <laughs> um, and that's been the story of my life. <laughs> Terror has always been the most extraordinary spur. <laughs> 
And presumably, um, because of the period that they're set in, they would actually require quite a bit of research. But if you're actually doing it in the way you've described, yeah. it doesn't sound like there would have been much time for that kind of research. Well, no, but that's for 20 years. You mm. see, for 20 years, sort of probably more in the period that I'd sort of finished my degree at university, mm which is sort of mid-70s, and this was mid-90s when I really began to dribble around with the first kind of 100 pages, and that, you know, it took me oh, two years to get that first draft together, two more years before the draft that Judith saw, wow. and then they wanted another draft and all the rest of it, hmm. um, and then I really had to do it. Um, I had read and read and read. I used to – I still do, you know. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy reading straight history as much as I enjoy reading, you know, uh, novels, stories. Mm. I mean, you know, there are great books like A World Lit, Lit Only by Fire, Barbara Tuchman, you know, mm. Alison Weir, for God's sake. And um, there's a wonderful woman called um, Eliza Pickard who writes, um, she's written a great book, Elizabeth London, and she's written a book about Jacobean London and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the list is endless. Mm. And I just read and read and read and read and read for pleasure. Right. And when you read for pleasure rather than just duty, stuff sticks. Mm. Um, and for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, once I had drafts, I always had to go back and check. Mm. But I didn't, mostly I didn't let the need to research something specific slow me down. Mm -mm. I'd just write it and then I would go back and make sure that if I was talking, you know, I discovered wonderful factoids that I really adored, you know, like mm -hmm. the first bath in England to have running water was was in Windsor Castle and it was put there by Richard II. You know, I just love that. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid as it sounds. You have to resist it though. <laughs> People don't read books for for the factoids, no. <laughs> um, but your first trilogy then was set in medieval England, but it your was. most recent novel, The Dressmaker, is set yep. in the Victorian era. Tell us about The Dressmaker and how that started formulating in your head and what it's oh, about well. and everything. Well, it, you know, people say, why don't you write contemporary books? And I have no idea why I don't at the moment write contemporary books. I'm just not attracted so much, though the one I'm currently writing is set, uh, I'll, t I'll talk about that in a minute, is set about 1,200 years ago in the present, so I'm getting there. But no. Okay, so the, the dressmaker started out life, ah, oh, it's bizarre. Here we go. Mm. I, I, I had been the director of drama at nine for three years, mm -hmm. and after Kerry Packer died and David Gintel left for the first time, I'd gone there to work with David, and Kerry had offered me the job, and you know I was excited to be there. But mm. it was going through terrible turmoil mm. and stuff that nobody in their right mind would have found very easy to deal with. And after three years, I'd had enough. Mm. And Judith offered me a new two-book deal, mm -hmm. Uh, on the back of the on the back of the uh, the three other books, and I was delighted to accept. And it was a safety net, you know. I could jump onto that and mm. get out the door and still make the clouds and start to work with Fremantle and you know blah blah. Mm. So off I did. That's what I did. Um, and um, I, I started a book, the one that I'm actually writing now, that I had so much wanted to write, which was this two-time period book. It's called The Island House, which I have to have finished in about February now, properly. Mm. And because I was personally, honestly, in a state of turmoil, because that job had sort of done my head in in lots mm. of ways, mm. um, 
fair enough because that's the nature of them. Um, I plunged in like a twit and wrote full steam ahead, but I wrote myself into sand on the island house and uh, lost all faith and belief. But that wasn't, I I, I think I understand that now that was more about my head. It wasn't, I hope it wasn't so much about the book. Right. And I have very understanding publishers. Um, uh, When I ran into sand on the island house, it coincided with the time that they were putting together an anthology of short stories. And they asked me to put in a short story and I was delighted to do it because Mm. it was like turning away from the slog. And again, Mm. when something flows, it's a delight. And a short story, which is not a medium that I've done much work in, this one just rolled out of my hands again and it was called The Last of the Car Shots. And it was it was a sort of a Victorian gothic about a very silly girl um, who, with a very inflated opinion about of herself, who gets invited to stay at a country house and gets a, a short, sharp lesson in compassion, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was set in Victorian times. And it's not a period that I'd really thought about writing. But when I ran into Sand with the Island House, I said I had another idea for another story which at that time was called Ellen Gowan. And I set up to write that with their blessing. And it took nearly, it's nearly four years later, you know, mm. because I started that, blimey. Well, no, it's not. It's three years later, mid-2007. Mid so it took a very, very long time for me, actually, with this book. And I started again at Second Draft. I have a very tough editor and she looked at me with the beady eye and... <gasps> This was when the manuscript was thick enough to stand on and get things down from a top shelf. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's not working. Start again. Ah, oh, God, that was tough that she was right. I, wow. was, I thought, Yeah, I thought I was writing one book about... I thought I was writing a story about two characters. And in fact, the person who the book was really about was one of the two characters. And right. once I saw that, I understood. Right. Anyway, so it's taken me a long time. Um, and it's been what's best described as a muscular process, um, but I'm happy with it now. I feel like um, all the struggle and confusion actually was worth it because sometimes periods of real adversity strip you right down, you know. Mm. You lose all certainty, all (laughs) surety. And that's not a bad thing sometimes. Only not a bad thing in hindsight. It's horrible at the time. Yeah, so at the time when the editor is saying to you, it's not working and Mm. you realise, oh, my God, I have to start again, Mm. what in the world do you – where do you start? How how did you figure out what went wrong or what you had to redo? How did you go through that process? Look, I I was devastated. I was really, really, really upset and cried bitter tears because, I mean, the truth is – because my writing work, which has actually had a formative effect, because it's really one of the reasons I write full time now rather than fitting it around other stuff. Mm. You give up a lot. If, you, if you're writing and working, mm. all those writers, you know, who write at night when their children are asleep or mm. try to fit it around hugely busy days, you do give up a lot. You give up a lot of your life, mm. you know. Mm. And I, uh, actual going out and sitting down and talking to friends and, you know, those things. So I was really, really distraught, um, and 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 I didn't I, wa- I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I 
didn't want right. to do it. I thought, okay, three books is enough. I'm, I'm just, I'm out of here. This is stupid. Yeah. Um, but Nicola O'Shea, who is my Australian editor, is very good. I'm, I'm used to working. Television is a wonderfully collaborative medium. When something's not working, you can sit around table with other people and you can discuss it. Mm. And things get taken apart and put back together around that table. It's very tough for the actual writer. If you've got good people around that table, if you've got a very fast turnaround looming on a series, I think you end up with better scripts. It's a very, again, a very muscular process. Mm. And I had to learn to ask for help <laughs> because I wanted to do it all myself. But, I mean, the good thing about an editor like Nicola is she gives me I think fantastic notes. Mm. Now, you know, notes are so abused as a, as, a, as a feedback process. You know, notes in Hollywood is almost guaranteed to be crap right. because people have got to earn their money. So they'll say they, that you need to do X, Y and Z because they think they need to be seen to be doing something. Yeah. In film and television, I think sometimes, and it's so subjective. But the thing about Nicola is she's, uh, I think she's a great structuralist. Right. And one of the things she was able to point out to me was where the structure wasn't standing up. And she said good things to me like, look, this is, I mean, she knows how to talk to writers. And I've seriously, working with Nicola, I've found out a whole lot more about what it's like to be on the receiving end as a writer <laughs> after a lifetime of being the one dishing out the comments. Mm, yes. and, and, you know, you're a, a snail without a shell when someone says something <laughs> casually and drops acid on you and you just want to curl up and get under the bed and die. Yes. Um, so she does understand that, but she also understands how to say things that need to be said and that, you know, if you, if you want it to work, you've probably got to listen. Mm. Um, so I found her relationship a lifeline. A, yeah, to, she's a structuralist. She's good at doing that. She's good at saying, look, I believe this character and I don't believe this character for the following reasons. Mm. Now, those are the sorts of notes that work best for me. Because it gives me something to embrace, but also something to react against, which means that I can agree or disagree and I can fulminate and stamp up and down and do whatever. I don't do it in front of her, but, you know, pace up and down and go, oh, that's crap, that's rubbish, that's nonsense, that's really good. And then you have to think about it and you go, oh, maybe it's not. And, and, and so to me... I mean, I know some people like to work and just do the whole book and get one lot of feedback. I don't. I get draft-by-draft draft feedback. Mm. I like it like that. Mm. And at the moment, that's stuff which is just sort of private to her and me. Mm. Um, so that – and this is the other lesson I've learned. I'm used to reading work stage by stage. My training has right. equipped me to say it's the first draft. Yeah, it's not a polish. Yeah, it's not the end of the process. It's the beginning. So I'm never. I I I believe I genuinely understand when something is on the way. Mm. You know, the first draft in my case is often this sort of saggy, baggy, shh, you know, sketch, and so is the second draft too, because you're still trying out a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. and I've learned to forgive myself a bit more than the third draft has to be about narrowing in and, you know, nailing the characters. And then for me, the fourth draft is all about 
making sure that the action is as clear as possible. Because mm. I have a terrible tendency. I love words to overwrite. <laughs> I just do. I mean, mm. you know, if I can have six words where one would probably do, I'll try to bung the six words in. <laughs> so that's a big tough one for me. So um, what what I've learned is that not all publishers get that. You know, they're much mm. they're quite flummoxed if you send them something that you regard as a work in progress and that you'd like to discuss with them. Mm. They don't have the time. That was the biggest lesson. You know, they just want the thing that's publishable. Mm. Like, you know, even if it goes through another draft, they want to they want to feel really sure that what they have is a real book, not a book that is becoming a book, not something that's becoming yeah. a book. Mm. Um, so, look, you know, in hindsight, I think it was luck mm. that um, enabled me to write those first three books in the fashion I did. And that you know they 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 had so much of an underpinning um, to them, which made the writing process more. Yeah. And also, you see, there are real characters in those books, mm. people who really did exist. And then I could interpolate the characters that I'd made up amongst mm. the action. So there was a terrific spine there, mm. or a scaffolding, if you like, to 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 truly draw on. Um, and the dressmaker is purely fiction. Mm. Um, there's nobody in there who's real at all. Um, so maybe that made a difference as well. Um, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things that that I what alchemy, you know. <laughs> Do you think if you didn't have such a such a good relationship with um, this particular editor and one who was you, you really related to her notes, well, you mm. eventually ultimately related to her notes, that you would have been able to figure out the issues yourself? Um, do you know, I've asked myself that question. Would <laughs> I still be floundering in the dark? Um, I don't know uh-huh. um, because this book was difficult. Um, and I hope I don't live through that again. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I solved a lot of the problems myself with the first three books. Right. So, um, um, and you know, but but I felt like a cripple with this one. How long did you sort of wallow before you got stuck back <sighs> into it? Oh, um, look, it was relatively short. I, I mean, that's that. I'm fortunate in that. Uh, I have reasonable bounce back, mm. um, probably a week or so. Oh, that's and then, fine. <laughs> and, and, and then I kind of got over it. Yes. Um, um, but, oh, it was a bad week. Sure, okay. So when you are writing, whether it's your first draft or your fourth draft or whatever, do you have a particular writing routine? Do you have to start the day a certain way? Do you keep certain hours? Do I have my lucky socks? Yes, exactly. Um, well, um, yes, I do. Um, I mean, you know, that, that sort of writing on a Sunday afternoon became such a kind of a, not a rigid thing, but such a habit that changing that um, has taken me a little while here in Tasmania. But what I do now... Since, since I've sort of gritted my teeth and said no more TV this week, uh, this year, I should say, or next year, I mean, not to say we won't do more at another point, but mm. really I wanted a period where I would just write. Mm. Um, I have um, 
a little piece of ground here that we that we are planting and there's a garden and there's this and that or there's not much of a garden but there's the beginnings of a garden mm. and there's endless amounts of physical work to do here mm-hmm. I mean physical work like shifting rocks and digging and I've discovered a real passion I do love to dig and I like getting very dirty yeah. I like that yeah. um, so what I what what it seems to me I do most now is I work in the mornings. Yeah. Um, and As in I you work write outside. The... Oh, you work yeah. outside. Uh-huh. Yeah, work outside, mm-hmm. and um, um, and often when I'm working outside, I'm kind of mulling because when you're doing physical work, lumping things around, um, it's not stuff you have to think about in yes. detail. You kind of set yourself on automatic pilot, and off you go. You shift the rocks from A to B, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so then I'll go in and have a shower because I inevitably become completely filthy and then I I sit down somewhere around one o'clock and, and I'll, you know, I'll work through till sort of close to dinner time. Mm -mm. That's kind of what I do. Um, and, um, and, and at the moment, because I'm now sprinting to get the Island House, um, uh, ready to go to the publishers at the beginning of February. Mm. Um, I'm doing this six days a week, mm. um, um, and because all October coming up soon is a, is out because of a book tour, and I just won't be able to write while I'm doing that. And do you have um, a word target? Not a word target so much as a page target. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On an edit, um, sort of 15 pages a day is what mm-hmm. I'm after. 15, 20 pages, mm-hmm. and I and I and I'll have a good day where I'll do all of that, and you know it won't take me five, five hours. Mm. Um, but if I don't have a good day and I've only done five or six, I want to kill myself. So. <laughs> okay. You'll have gathered. You'll have gathered that I'm not known either for my poker face or my serenity. <laughs> And so now you also write lyrics. Yes. Tell us a bit about that and what you enjoy about it. Well, look, you know, if people say to you that you can control your life, tell them they're dreaming (laughs) Um, because you can make all the plans. And I like to, you know, witter on about plans and I'll do this this year and this next year and all the rest of it. But in fact, that's not the way my life has ever really worked. Things have sort of turned up. Well, the songs were a bit like that. I think what it was, I'd lived so long with my clouds in my head that by the time it finally rolled and I'd spent painful years developing scripts to have them chucked out by the bloody network, pardon me, they know how I feel, Um, uh, to start again, to do this, to do that, I really felt like I knew the characters. And what I wanted to do, because Australians are laconic, I wanted the songs to be and to be able to express the inner lives of the characters. So the song would tell you something the character couldn't tell you. Mm. And I used to do a lot of travelling because we shot in South Australia and the script office was Mm. in Sydney because it was close to the network and that's where we edited and did our sounds and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, And I really... (laughs) I, I wrote um, a, a song. One song got written by another writer. It was terrific, and it was in the first episode. But I'd written the opening title theme with the composer. I mean, the song, uh, the lyrics, and and we, in the end, I started writing them because it was it was taking so much time to get them um, from other people. And right. lyrics are like a poem, mm, mm. and and it's there's something in it that is that that either nails it or it doesn't. Mm. 
And um, so arrogantly enough, um, I started to think, bugger it, it's so much less trouble if I start to do it. Mm. And also I was working with the composer Chris Harriet. Now, Chris had also done all the music for High Five um, and had um, he and Andrew and I had worked on actually a bunch of kids' series mm-hmm. in the 90s mm-hmm. and we just got to know one another really well. Music's very odd. Working with a composer, it's so hard if you're... It's so hard to put into words mm. what... You can say, I want people to feel X here, yeah. or I want, I want, I want, I want this to energise the scene, or I want this to bridge the scene. You can do things like that, mm. but there's something that goes on that's chemical, mm. or alchemical. Mm. And um, Chris and I sort of understand each other, and he, and I can't. It's hard, even though words and what I do, um, I, it's hard to put into words. He used to say. When we first started um, writing these, which was about um, 2001, he used to say that he knew if he had a song, by the time I faxed him a page of lyrics and he'd read all the way through, that he was hearing the music in his head. And, of course, after that, we got onto email and all the rest of it Mm. as times changed. Mm. But that was formidable. And he was never backward and coming forward and saying, no, this doesn't work. But mostly it worked. And I'd, I'd sort of... I'd write it on the plane, I'd get to the production office, I'd fax him the lyrics, mm. and he'd ring me up, swear to God, you know, five minutes later, and sing me the song. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's now, magical. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> and and he still does it. I made a trailer for The Dressmaker, oh. and um, uh, I did. Um, the publisher very bravely said, yes, let's do it, and... Um, um, we, you know, we obviously there was not a lot of money, so I called in a lot of favours, and Chris was one of them, and I directed it. I had directed it for twenty years. We had the best time. Mm. But I said to Chris, you know, it's like two and a half minutes long or something. The trailer, and it forms into three little acts, really. Right. And he basically gave me a three movement symphony, wow. symphony for two and a half minutes, and he just did it. Wow. But obviously, so creatively, you've got this great relationship with Chris. You've obviously got a, you know, synergistic relationship with Nicola, the editor. Nicola. And, mm. and obviously, when you, you know, create successful television series, there's a lot of to and fro and collaboration. Yeah. What do you think then is a key to a successful creative collaboration where the sum of the parts, you know, exceeds? Greater than the, yeah. whole, the whole is greater than whatever that is. Yes. Um, look, it's different with each collaboration mm-hmm. because with some people you will have great sympathy, you know, fellow empathy, whatever that is. However, sometimes it's like a little grit, little piece of grit in the oyster. I mean, I've had a couple of working relationships where um, it's quite tough. Um, You know, one celebrated one, and Susan Bauer is the person I'm about to name. She was the first script producer on The Clouds. Well, she and I wrestled for the soul of that show. Mm. Um, And um, we really did because, you know, that's what you do to very competitive people in this case. Mm. Um, But I reckon the sum of those two parts was infinitely better than if it had just been her or just been me mm. because we struck sparks off one another. I mean, we didn't end up screaming at each other. Well, mm-hmm. I think we did on a couple of occasions, but that was normal and that's kind of stress of the moment sort mm. of thing. Mm. Um, 
so that collaboration is very, very different from the one I have with Chris, which is almost without words. <laughs> you know, I send in the words, he sends me a song. Um, and, you know, rarely does it get changed. Um, so I don't know I if there's anything... I also know that the best relationships for me are the long-term ones mm. um, because they're the ones where you've you've truly got to know one another. It's not something that happens quickly. Mm. I mean, you might get a sense of empathy or synchrony or whatever the hell it is, but a lot of – you have to go through a lot together, it seems to me, to get to the truth of something. Mm. Um, and – so a long-term collaboration is the one that I particularly treasure. Not to say I don't. I mean, I've also met, like when I did the trailer, it was the second time I'd worked with a couple of people, mm. um, this wonderful DOP and stills photographer called Ben Allen, who also cut the trailer. But we also had this glorious costume designer who, her name is Ingrid Weir. She's Peter Weir's daughter. She's a young woman in her 20s. And mm. she is meticulous and particular. And I needed because it's set in the 1850s, mm. I absolutely wanted particular kinds of clothing and they're mm. quite hard to find these days in a place like Sydney because we do so little um, little uh, period stuff anymore, well, at the moment. And so to find the clothing that I wanted, she conjured magic, you know. And, and so these are people I hope to work with again and again, mm. even though they're people I've only just really, in, in real terms, only worked with on two small things. Mm. But I tell you what, I think you know it when you see it. Right, yeah. I think you get the sense. Um, I think you get the sense that something's going to work. And if you got some, if you got your next television venture in your head, like the clouds was there forever. <laughs> so, not television. Right. I want to write a feature film, and I want to direct it. Oh. Yeah, and it was the dressmaker that gave me that. Not oh. that I'm, not that it's the dressmaker, but um, I, I it, it was the writing the dressmaker, but also making the trailer. Um, it just inspired me. It really did. And I really, 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 really want to make a piece of something in Tasmania because it's a landscape no one sees, yeah. really. And it's sobbing spectacular. Mm -hmm. and, and it's seasonal. And I'd like to shoot something in winter, <laughs> you know, the opposite of the blue skies kind of thing. Right. The mist hangs up in these trees, you know. Mm. Um, uh, I, 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 so, yes, there is something. Right. Um, I want to finish this book, I think, and this The Island House, and then um, I think I'd like to do at least a first draft of the film in the next sort of 12 weeks if I can make that work. Wow. First half of next year. Yeah, but, you know, this is here's me saying oh. grandly... Let's do this. But I'll, I can. You can write a script. Christ, I've written a script in a week if yeah. I had to. Mm. Um, um, and it depends how well it flows. Um, um, but, you know, it's growing in mm. my head. It's like there. They're all at the back, sure. <laughs> you know, competing and, now at the back of my head. And finally, for those people who, you know, you cross so many different types of writing genres from – well, soon-to-be films and television series, lyrics, uh, <laughs> fictional novels. What's your advice to people who are listening who, who, who dream of doing something like that? Where, what should they do? Where should they start? <sighs> um, what should they do? They should write. Mm. I mean, the, the truth is 
if I had $5 for every time somebody said, oh, I'd really love to write a novel and I've never, I've never done it or I've never got to the end, I think the best piece of advice that I can give is the thing that it took me such a long time to discover. And that's the discipline, in my case, of just writing once a week. And that was mm. something I could achieve. Mm. I, you know, I, I wasn't setting myself up for failure by saying, oh, I'm going to write every night till midnight. Mm. At the end of the working day, all I did was write once a week. And if you give yourself a target of little and often, but you make sure that you actually do that, that you really give yourself a target, mm. you, 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 you gather confidence. Um, I mean, when you think it'll never finish. But it's like digging over a patch of ground. You know, yesterday I was out digging, mm. which I do like to do, mm. and I'd begun... And I looked up and I thought, oh, God, I'm never going to get this finished before the rain comes. Well, mm. the rain came and it wasn't very heavy, so I kept digging. And um, um, I got the ground dug. And it wasn't such a very big piece of ground. And at the end, I stood back and I went, oh, I did that. <laughs> and I found all these worms that I could put in my compost heap, you know. So, um, so it's... When it's so tentative as the beginning of anything is, mm. if you don't beat yourself up, don't set yourself up for failure, mm. if you allow yourself the sense that you're getting somewhere, mm. you know, it's like climbing a hill, isn't it? Halfway up, you think, oh God, there's all that way to go, but then you look behind and you've actually come a long way. Mm. I think that's little and often consistency, mm. um, that's important. I think, I think it's um, the people around you um, need to understand you're going to bump into walls mm. and, and that, you know, you're going to be in this distracted state when you write. It's very helpful if the people in your life can give you that space and don't hassle you and, you know, those sorts of things. I'm fortunate that I live with Andrew and Andrew completely is very good about it. Mm. My my mother was a writer. Well, he is. He's looking at me and smiling, but it's the truth. I mean, he doesn't have hysterics when I just, you know, wander off and I'm not seen for hours. Mm. My my mother was also a novelist, but my father didn't handle it. You know, she mm. she she would have written a lot more, I think, except in a different day and age, except that I think he found it difficult when she was writing. Mm. So it would be it would be lovely if your potential writers felt like they had emotional support when they're writing. Yeah. It would be nice if they allowed themselves to achieve things without self-sacrifice, you know, without the mental talk in their heads going, this is crap, this is rubbish. Because you have to work your way through that. Mm. Almost every time I write, I sit down and I think, oh, this is crap, this is rubbish, this is nonsense. Mm. You have to ignore that. You have to allow yourself to do it. Oh, and the other bit is you must learn to move forward, not to edit so much that you never get further forward. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and those three things, I mean, you can't. Who, who, who knows whether you can control whether the people around you are supportive or not. You probably can't. Mm. But you can do something about a consistent amount, a small but consistent amount of effort, and you can do something about allowing yourself to move forward and not get mired into trying to make something perfect the first time. Mm. Perfect. But there are, there are different styles. Everyone has different styles. Yeah, but that's a wonderful basis to start from. So on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Posey. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.
You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.